0: Matt, continuing your annual zigging when everybody else is zagging, you don't look back, you look forward and you've already written your 2024 preliminary look ahead post and it's up on radical compliance. So I thought maybe we could take a look at some of the issues you see right now that compliance officers and others need to think about. Mm -hmm. So what to just go down the list and then maybe we could take a deep dive into some of these topics. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Compliance Into the Weeds for 2024. In this podcast, we take a look at some of the top issues that Matt and I are looking at in 2024 that compliance officers really need to have on their radar screen, think about what it might mean for their compliance programs, and be prepared for any ruling, uh, regulatory issues, or compliance-related topics From the Department of Justice. I know you'll enjoy it. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with Matt Kelly for the award winning Compliance into the Weeds for our first edition of 2024. Matt, Happy New Year.
1: Happy New Year to you, Tom, and to everybody who's joining us. Thank you for listening,
0: everyone, and thanks for having me on. Matt, continuing your uh, annual zigging when everybody else is zagging, you don't look back, you look forward. And you've already written your 2024 preliminary look ahead post, and it's up on radical compliance. So I thought maybe we could uh, take a look at some of the issues you see right now that compliance officers and others need to think about. Mm -hmm. So what uh, sort of just go down the list, and then maybe we could take a deep dive into some of these topics.
1: Sure, we can go down the list. And uh, just for everybody who, for some context, what I always try and think about for what will be new and worth watching in any given year is more what has not really come around before that will be a new sort of challenge for compliance officers. So, for example, will heightened sanctions risk be a thing in 2024? Yes, it will. Did it make my list this year? No, it didn't, because it's been a heightened compliance risk for a while, certainly since uh, Russia invaded Ukraine nearly two years ago now. So it may have been something worth watching in 2023, but not in 2024. We're really thinking about what are the challenges coming along that we don't necessarily know how we're going to handle them yet, because they haven't really come around in this form before. So I picked out a bunch. Um, I will go through them all very quickly, and then, Tom, we can pick through them at your discretion. But number one would be the Foreign Extortion Prevention Act, which bans uh, foreign government officials from accepting bribes from U.S. companies. Um, The NOCLAR proposal from the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, which was floated last year, that would require audit firms to look for compliance violations at their client companies look for them much more aggressively and handle them, bring them to the board's attention much more promptly. What would that mean? We're likely to see that come to fruition sometime this year. Uh, SolarWinds, the cybersecurity company, and its CISO, Tim Brown, who were sued last year by the SEC for poor cybersecurity disclosures, that's likely to come around to some sort of Uh, interesting phase this year. I don't know what, but how is that case going to evolve? Um, I have two issues around artificial intelligence. Number one will be how governments try to regulate AI this year. I think we're going to see more specific AI regulation in 2024. We saw a lot of talk about it in 2023, but not a lot of specific new regulation yet. So, what will that look like in 2024? And then the second AI issue is I'm curious if this is going to be the year that AI really arrives in a big, significant way in GRC technology platforms. A lot of compliance vendors are talking about it. A lot of compliance vendors are racing to integrate AI into their products. Those were still largely in, I'll call them pilot phases last year, but I think. This year, we might see it get a whole lot closer to reality. Um, And then, Tom, I have another one that was kind of a sleeper on my radar screen, um, that the Second Circuit Court of Appeals in New York is evaluating basically whether to strip the SEC of the power to impose disgorgement as a penalty across a wide range of cases that would be relevant to compliance officers, including the FCPA and insider trading, And if this ruling that came around last year in a preliminary format, if this stands, that's the question that's going to be decided this year. How would that work if the SEC can no longer compel companies to disgorge ill-gotten profits from corruption schemes? That's going to be something that we'll have to think about, too. So those are the six I had right there. We could probably come up with a bunch more, but uh, that's my list.
0: Well, Matt, let's start with one that uh, came about near the end of 2023, and that's the Foreign Extortion Prevention Act, or for those inside baseball, FIPA. Yeah. Um, we took on FIPA in a prior podcast, and we, I think we ended up with more questions than answers, um, as is often the case with a new law. But does this law really have the uh, opportunity or the ability to make a change, or is this just uh icing on something that, the uh, cake that needed icing for the last 50 years, meaning the FCPA?
1: Well, I, I do think that it has an opportunity to be a big deal. Uh, and you're right, Tom, when we discussed FIPA a couple of weeks ago, we did have more questions than answers. What I'm hoping for in 2024 are some of the answers. um And we are looking at you, Justice Department, because you are the ones who are going to have to give us these answers. So FIPA, I would call it a companion legislation to the FCPA. The FCPA made it a a crime to offer a bribe to the foreign government officials. Now it's going to make it a crime for the foreign government official to accept the bribe or to solicit the bribe. So how will the existence and enforcement of FIPA affect FCPA enforcement and compliance? And the obvious example is that if you, company, are responsible for trying to cooperate, if you want a good FCPA resolution, uh, if you're supposed to then cooperate with the regulators to pursue all the individuals who might be culpable in a bribery scheme, well, that would include the foreign government official now. So how does this work? Do you have to fully cooperate in a FIPA investigation that might go along with your FCPA investigation? What does that mean in practice? If the answer is yes, you know, could you see a delay in your FCPA resolution until the FIPA government uh, official is indicted? Or, you know, what if that government official is extradited to the United States and faces trial? Are you, as a company, are you going to have to put your employees on the stand? Um, We don't know what these questions are. I am in favor of FIPA. I think it is a good thing. But We really need to understand from the Justice Department, now that you have this new tool in your toolkit, what are you going to do with it? And from there, compliance officers could reverse engineer, okay, if this is how FIPA is going to be enforced, my anti-corruption program might need to be rejiggered and retailored in the following ways. I'm going to do that. That's the big variable around FIPA. And I hope that at some point, compliance conference somewhere fairly soon, somebody from the fraud section or the criminal division is going to stand up and give a speech explaining how they might actually use FIPA and how that might have implications for compliance.
0: Matt, another uh, topic you put on your watch list for 2024 is the NOCLAR proposal. Uh, once again, this is something that came out last summer, and we actually had the opportunity to visit about this over a couple of different podcasts. Um, I'm not sure if the phrase more questions than answers is appropriate, because I think everyone saw some really difficult issues if this proposal is implemented as written. Uh, We've now had significant commentary from a wide range of practitioners and interested parties. Um, Where do you think this goes in 2024?
1: Well, I think the operative metaphor here is can of worms, um, which has been opened Last summer, when the PCAOB did propose its NOCLAR uh, rule, its standard, NOCLAR stands for non-compliance with laws and regulations. And the proposed standard would have audit firms look for any compliance violation that could have a material effect on the company. So let's think about what that means. For an audit firm to know what compliance violations would have a material effect it would need to understand all potential compliance violations its client company might have. And then you can start to rule out, well, these over here would never have a material effect. But it is a huge expansion of the risk assessment an audit firm would have to do. Um, Somebody would have to pay for that. That somebody would be you, client company, because the audit firm is just going to send you the billable hours for it. Um, But ultimately, I think... Would the enormous amount of potential new work that audit firms would have to do as they're going around your enterprise looking for material compliance violations, if all of that work doesn't come up with a lot of violations that have to be dealt with, like is the juice going to be worth the squeeze here? And I'm not sure that the answer is yes, it is. It may very well be that, no, this is not a good idea. That's not going to be worth it. Um, tellingly, when the five-member board of the PCAOB proposed this standard last summer, the vote on doing this was three to two, and the two board members who said, no, don't do this, were professional auditors in their prior lives, both of whom said this is going to be an enormously complicated undertaking, um, and we shouldn't do it. Plus, isn't assessing what a material compliance violation, isn't that the company's job, not an outsider's job. On the other hand, I do see the point that, you know, you could have some very serious compliance violations at a company. And if they don't lead to a material misstatement of financial results, which a lot of compliance violations, they don't lead to a restatement. They lead to a lot of other stuff, but they don't lead to restatements well, then the audit firm could get away with saying it wasn't going to lead to a restatement, so we didn't have to care about it. But the investor still winds up with egg on their face when the compliance violation becomes public and it blows up. The example that is often cited is Wells Fargo, which violated just about every single compliance violation known to man and probably a few known to aliens, but it never actually had to restate its financials. So its auditor conceivably could say, well, we didn't really have any duty to tell anybody that Wells Fargo was a dumpster fire for years. And that makes no sense either. Uh, So we are going to see, I think, sometime in 2024, the final version of this. I don't know what it's going to look like because the audit firms are not thrilled with this. Audit committees and corporate boards, they don't like this. I am sure that if it is adopted as originally proposed, The U.S. Chamber of Commerce or one of those groups that are business lobbyists, they're going to sue over this to try and block it. Um, But good governance people are correct when they say that shouldn't somebody somewhere, when they see a big compliance violation, shouldn't auditors and other gatekeepers have a duty to say, like, by the way, that dumpster is on fire. Somebody call the fire department. They're not wrong to raise that question. Um, I'm not sure exactly when we'll see this rule take a final form. It is on the rulemaking deck for the PCAOB this year. And when it is, that's going to be a big deal.
0: Now, another topic you raised, uh, which we also brought up uh, preliminarily in 2023, was the SEC action against solar winds, and equally importantly, its current CISO, uh, Timothy Brown. Uh, We don't have a trial date yet on this, but this still still seems to be causing much gnashing of teeth in the CISO community and perhaps by extension to the chief compliance officer community. What about this one?
1: Yeah, I think that this one should lead to concern and some grinding of teeth, maybe, if not gnashing, um, among the risk assurance executive profession. Whether you are a CISO or a chief internal auditor or a chief compliance officer or somebody else in the second line of defense, what really happened here is that for many years, SolarWinds, an IT services company, published a statement for all to see, its security statement, uh, that uh, it took its cybersecurity very seriously. And it took many steps such as multi-factor authentication and a secure software development life cycle. And so therefore, dear investor or consumer, you can trust us SolarWinds that we take cybersecurity seriously. That was on the front side. On the inside, there were numerous uh, SolarWinds employees who were saying, this is absolutely not the case. We are nowhere near this state of security that we are telling people. And the question is, either did Timothy Brown and other senior management at SolarWinds, did they either know about that employee discontent and disagreement and ignore it, or did they not know about it because the internal processes to escalate risks upward were somehow malfunctioning? In either scenario, that still points to blame for somebody, according to the SEC. And we should note, SolarWinds is vowing to fight this case. But according to the SEC, those flawed internal processes that didn't connect what the real risks were on the inside that were being discussed and what the external disclosures to investors were, you know somebody somewhere had to be responsible for that. Um, the SEC maintains that CISO-Brown Did know or was grossly negligent in not knowing that the company wasn't up to its security standards. And yet he and other senior executives were still passing off these disclosures that everything's hunky dory to investors. Then came SolarWinds' disastrous cybersecurity attack in 2020, done by the Russian government, a total disaster for SolarWinds. And so, how is this case going to evolve in 2024, if at all? um maybe one or the other parties involved either solar winds or mr brown maybe they'll settle maybe they will reach some sort of swift resolution maybe they will decide this is a hill that we are going to die on and therefore you know it might not come to anything at all in 2024 we might see a few pre trial motions but it is I think a symbolic of other concerns that compliance and risk assurance executives should have, what sort of personal liability might I face if the company's internal processes to discuss risk aren't also reflected in the external disclosures we make to investors? Who is responsible for that disconnect? What is my duty as a second line of defense officer to, to make sure that the disclosures are accurate? Isn't that senior executive's purview? You know, What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do if I raise the whistle and the CEO and CFO says, nope, we're making these disclosures anyways, and you think they're wrong? Um, will we see more cases like this by the SEC in 2024 and beyond? This case is symbolic in many ways, and it is freighted with a lot of liability issues that I think compliance officers and internal auditors and CISOs need to watch very
0: carefully. The um, regulated industries have had an ongoing dialogue regarding potential liability of a, a chief compliance officer with the New York city bar Mm -hmm. proposing a test beyond what the sec currently has in place. The department of justice has never prosecuted a chief compliance officer for negligence in the areas of either their compliance program or any disclosures that a company may have made regarding the efficacy of their, um, FCPA compliance program. Um, So to me, that's uh, we have sort of a continuum here of CISOs being treated a little bit differently than chief compliance officers in regulated industries and then a lot different than chief compliance officers in non-regulated industries where the prosecutor is the Department of Justice as opposed to the Securities and Exchange Commission, CFTC, or some other government agency. Um, Do you foresee, if not uh, any uh, scope creep, Potential CCO liability, or are we really still talking academic issues? In your opinion, at this point,
1: well, that's a good question because there are a lot of companies out there where they they speak the word compliance and they don't think in terms of ethics and compliance and legal issues like we do. They speak the word compliance and they think IT security and privacy. Um, And I do wonder sometimes if we will ultimately see a chief compliance officer who is really more of a somebody who's in charge of data privacy or something like that, um, that they might face some sort of liability for what ethics and compliance officers would say, well, that's not what I do. I do anti-corruption stuff. Um, I could envision other scenarios where a chief privacy compliance officer might face liability if they're grossly negligent. Uh, and maybe they suffer a massive privacy breach, but they are a healthcare provider and HHS takes an enforcement action against them. What if you are in charge of cybersecurity compliance at a public utility, but the disclosures you're making either to investors, that's the SEC's purview, or to state regulators or to federal regulators in charge of critical infrastructure, you know, that your disclosures and assurances you make to them are so bad that you don't know what you don't know, and then your public utility suffers a blackout across two-thirds of the country. That Would that rise to the level of criminal exposure? Like You can sketch out ways that maybe we could get there, but I do think at the moment, Tom, um, it's still going to be the SEC who is um, closest to the idea of holding second line of defense people responsible, or even third line of defense, if we want to say chief internal auditors. But those people in charge of providing assurance that, yes, this compliance issue is handled, regardless of your specific title or exactly what you're assuring over, you know, the odds of you facing liability because your ability to provide good assurance is somehow mistaken or flawed or incorrect, Like I think that's ticking up even though a lot of regulators would say, oh, no, we'd never do that. It, I mean, Tim Brown would beg to differ.
0: Matt, next up you have AI from a couple of different angles. The first is from the regulatory slash governmental oversight angle. And the second is a little bit more from the business perspective on utilizing uh, AI in GRC or or other compliance-focused uh, SaaS solutions or platforms What do you see in both of those areas regarding AI?
1: Well, I'll start with uh, regulation of AI first. So in October, I think it was, the Biden administration enacted or adopted its executive order uh, on artificial intelligence, which didn't actually have much regulation of AI in the order itself. Instead, that executive order directed other regulatory agencies to make further regulation about AI Forthwith. Well, forthwith would be 2024. So I will be curious to see what happens there. For example, um, these generative AI products and the large language models that they use, uh, they are supposed to be subject to red team testing, which is a fancy way of saying really intense cybersecurity testing. And the order says the most powerful AI systems, quote unquote, must do red team testing and share those results with the government. Well, testing according to what? That standard is going to come out probably in 2024 from NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Uh, Who defines what the most powerful AI systems are? That would be the Commerce Department which is going to have forthcoming regulations sometime probably this year in consultation with other regulatory agencies. Over in Europe, I think it was in mid-December, they passed the Artificial Intelligence Act, which is a fancy way of saying that the EU has done something when they haven't really done that much. Like they don't have a full sweep of exactly what will or won't be permissible in Europe for artificial intelligence. They have some ideas, Um, using AI to come up with a social governance score, kind of like what the Chinese government does with its people. Okay, the AI Act in Europe says that's illegal. They're not doing that. Um, But it also gives some other examples. But there's going to be a lot more negotiating among EU member states. There's going to be a lot more regulation coming from various European Commission agencies. I don't know exactly what we might see out of Europe in 2024, because everything over there happens at a glacial pace, but perhaps some sliver of that glacier will break off and float into public view in 2024, in which case compliance officers could then start to get their heads around, if this is the regulation, how should we be retooling compliance policies and procedures and training at our specific company? I think that's going to be happening in 2024. Tom, the other big AI thing I had, as you said, was I'm curious to see what the compliance vendors themselves will be putting into their own products using generative AI. All of them are thinking about it. Uh, Some of them have unveiled some early types of AI where they are using natural language processing to let a user ask a question of the the GRC app. And then the GRC app would dictate an answer. A lot like ChatGPT, but it's not learning from the open internet and all of the wackadoo stuff out there that leads to AI hallucinations. These applications would basically use the interface that we've seen with ChatGPT. But the AI learns from only your own data about your compliance risks or your issues so eventually you could ask for something instead of using a GRC app to pull a report on who are your top 10 vendors with the greatest compliance risk. And you'd have to check and you know do all of this complex reporting. You could just say, hey, GRC app, who are my top riskiest third parties today? And it would say, well, here's the list, boom, 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 and give you the top 10. Um, they're working on that. I think 10 years from now, all GRC apps will be able to do something like that. They haven't really gotten all of that widespread yet. And I think a lot of compliance officers and CISOs and chief technology officers are still going to be rather skittish about vetting this technology. The vendors all know this. The vendors are sweating all of the accuracy and data security questions just as much as you are. But um, that I think we're going to see more and more of, and we're going to start seeing more of it in 2024, that I'm sure.
0: Matt, you conclude uh, with a look at a case that, frankly, I was not following, but obviously should have been, and that's a case in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals around the SEC's disgorgement powers. Uh, Interestingly, the Angels of Death at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals have upheld the SEC's right to seek um, disgorgement. Uh, and now we get this decision out of the Second Circuit, which I always thought was a, you know an intellectual level above the angels of death at the Fifth Circuit, which holds the opposite, at least in the first ruling. You want to tell us about this case, what it could mean for the SEC, and um, – might go. Yeah, this is fascinating, Tom. I have to admit, I didn't have this
1: on my radar either until I stumbled across a legal brief from one of the big law firms looking at this case. So this is SEC v. Goville. Mr. Goville was convicted of insider trading, or like accused of insider trading um, by the SEC. It wasn't a criminal case. But Mr. Goville's argument was that he can't be compelled to disgorge ill-gotten profits because there aren't any investor harms to insider trading. So therefore, if you are, according to Supreme Court standards, supposed to make restitution to harmed victims, but there aren't any victims, then I shouldn't have to pay. And that's really the legal question here. Um, what the Second Circuit ruled, I believe it was on Halloween, it was at the end of October, is that under SEC standards, um, disgorgement is intended for victims of a crime or a a, a civil offense. Uh, But the victim is, quote, one who suffers pecuniary harm from the securities fraud, close quote. So that means that the victim has to suffer direct financial harm in order for disgorgement to happen so that they can take the ill-gotten gains and give them back to those harmed people. But this is where it gets interesting is that Investors typically are not harmed in a lot of securities fraud cases. Um, They're not harmed by an FCPA violation. They're not harmed by an insider trading. There are people who suffer harm from those things and sometimes egregious harm. But if you announce an FCPA violation, you know, is your stock going to tank? Is it going to flatline? Like, no, it's not. Because the victim of the FCPA violation of the bribery is the public living under that corrupt government official or the other company that didn't get the contract because they didn't stoop to paying a bribe. But that's not your investor. And the Second Circuit said under Supreme Court standards, the victim has to have suffered real harm and a victim is always going to be the investor because this is securities fraud and we're worried about investors, right? So that was their logic that disgorgement won't be able to be used. In cases uh, where there isn't any direct, tangible proof that investors suffered the harm. Uh, as you rightly say, Tom, the Fifth Circuit had already ruled that, of course, the SEC has disgorgement har- uh, powers, e- even in FCPA or insider trading or other cases like that. So we have a circuit split. Inevitably, I think that means that the SEC is probably going to appeal this to the Supreme Court, and they, the Supreme Court would probably take it. They do not like having circuit splits, that's very awkward. Um, it's weird that the very right-wing Fifth Circuit appeals court down in Texas, uh, that they said, yes, the SEC has this enforcement power when the Second Circuit in New York, which has a much more sophisticated and nuanced appreciation for financial crimes and securities fraud, they said, no, the SEC doesn't. I would have expected it to be the other way around. But the SEC did ask the Second Circuit to reconsider its original ruling from Halloween, which I assume will happen sometime in 2024. Um, Maybe a rehearing or some sort of en banc hearing at the Second Circuit might revise this uh, ruling and allow disgorgement to continue, in which case I think Supreme Court review probably does go away. I'm I'm not sure. But... um, Let's consider how would that actually work for compliance officers if the SEC couldn't get disgorgement of ill-gotten gains. I mean, like right away, I think a lot of companies would say, well, then we want the most profitable ill-gotten gains we can get because it ain't like the SEC is going to be able to take away our profits. So you could have companies suddenly much less interested in Caring about corporate compliance programs, because if you get to keep the proceeds of the scam, then like, why am I going to listen to the compliance officer telling me I shouldn't be doing the scam? What if the SEC then responds by saying, "Okay, we're just going to do monetary penalties for a similar or equal amount instead of disgorgement"? What if they say, "All right, well now we're just going to give this over to the Justice Department, which does have disgorgement capabilities and powers"? That's not in question although the Justice Department has plenty to do, and it is a higher burden of proof than the SEC. So there's like a dozen different ways that if this ruling from the Second Circuit stands, this leads us to some really weird scenarios and possibilities. Few of them are helpful to, I certainly to compliance officers, and I think to corporate defendants generally, but uh, we're going to have to see where this case goes in 2024.
0: Well, I really appreciate your description of uh, the Second Circuit having a more nuanced appreciation of securities laws. But unless they reverse or cut back on this, I think this has to go to the Supreme Court because of the split in circuits. Yeah. Uh, I also think you're correct. If they do change their decision, then there's no circuit split and no question. But then the question for me, Matt, becomes as antithetical as this Supreme Court is to the SEC – Will they take some opportunity to gratuitously strip the SEC of yet more powers, which seems to be uh, the conservatives want on the Supreme Court?
1: Well, I mean, uh, my analysis is that we have three right wing wackadoo justices in Thomas, Alito, and usually Gorsuch, um, who probably would try and do that. But we have three liberal justices who are going to be perfectly content to leave the SEC alone. And then we have the centrist wing, which I kind of throw up in my mouth when I call Roberts, Kavanaugh, and uh, Amy Coney Barrett as centrist. They're not centrist, but there are centuries you get with this court. They're conservative, but I think they're practical conservatives. And you have to remember that, you know, for example, Justice Kavanaugh, he served on the Second Circuit in DC, uh, on the uh, DC Circuit, rather. Like, he's handled government and administrative procedure cases a lot. I think he and others would appreciate that, like, This leads us to some absurd results. So you can violate securities law and then keep the ill-gotten profits on a really just desiccated reading of what Supreme Court um, precedent is. I don't think it makes a lot of sense. I think it opens a big can of worms in other ways. But fundamentally, it is defanging regulators' ability to say that if you break the law, you're going to pay for it. If crime does pay— a whole lot of companies are going to say well sure then let's engage in a little bit of crime you know what's the harm you know nobody can come after us for it we get to keep the money that's a terrible terrible position for compliance and ethics programs and i hope it's not going to come to pass so i hope really that the second circuit rehears this and kind of gets over themselves and realizes the practical implications of what they're doing and just knock it off with that original ruling it makes no sense and when i'm in agreement with the fifth circuit that it makes no sense. Like, guys, it doesn't make any sense. So that's my take on it.
0: Well, we have now set the bar extraordinarily high for a closing note in 2024, (laughs) that when Matt Kelly and the Fifth Circuit agree. So I think we'll end on that note. Matt, as always, it's been a pleasure. Uh, We're going to link to your blog post in our show notes, and I can't wait to see what next week brings. Thank you, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the award-winning Compliance Into the Weeds. Matt and I hope you had a great holiday season and a happy new year. And we're thrilled that you've joined us for our first podcast of 2024. If you've enjoyed this podcast or enjoy any of the Compliance Into the Weeds, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review wherever great podcasts are listened to. If you've enjoyed Compliance Into the weeds, you may enjoy Everything Compliance, the only award-winning roundtable podcast in compliance. It comes out every other Thursday. Our first episode in 2024 will be Thursday, January 18th. It features Matt, Karen Woody, Jay Rosen, Jonathan Armstrong, and Jonathan Marks commenting on a variety of compliance topics. If you haven't done so, Check out Compliance Into the Weeds. Both are our production of the Compliance Podcast Network.
1: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.